Bibles to uh, John chapter 3. We're going to continue through our study of the book of John. And let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to be able to be in your word. And that tells us, Lord, about you. That tells us about who you are how you work, what your thoughts towards us are, what your thoughts towards the world is, what your desires are. And we thank you, Lord, for chapters like this that show us that your desire is not to condemn. Your desire is to come and save us, to restore relationship. You are the great peacemaker. You are the great redeemer. And I pray, Father, that you would take this time and that you would, Lord, enlighten our hearts. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts. May we not just see with our, um, with the eyes of our, of our head, but that we might be able to see, Lord, uh, what, is, what is spiritual. And I pray that uh, you would just bless the time we spend together. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's, we're dealing with Nicodemus, our third week. It says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. And Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said, are you a teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. The light has come into the world, 
And men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. I love, I'm, I'm, I'm loving this chapter. It's the third week we spend in it. But remember, the, the contrast is chapter 2. Many people were impressed with his signs, Jesus' signs. And it says that Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew what was in man. In a sense, I believe that's what it's saying is they were fans of Jesus. They loved what he did. They were not really interested in who he was. And the contrast is Nicodemus comes to him by night. And it seems like he wants to go beyond what he does to who he is. That is the great transformation that can happen in our life. Where we're not so concerned about what Jesus does, although he does a lot, although he blesses, but we are more interested in who he is. That is the best thing that can happen with anyone in the world, no? I mean, if you have a friendship, you want people interested in you for who, what you do or who you are. And Nicodemus draws near to Jesus, and he wants to know firsthand. So he responds to Jesus' miracles. He responds to those, and he wants to go deeper. And Jesus challenges him. But the thing that astonishes me in these chapters is that Jesus reveals to him the plan of God. And Jesus reveals to Nicodemus as he, as he responds, as he presses deeper, he reveals the precious doctrine, the amazing doctrine of the love of God. Now, this is crazy. We looked at it last week. It was the, the breadth and the, and the length and the depth and the height of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. But it's interesting, you know, do you, um, because when it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that is the first time that the word love is mentioned in the New Testament. And it's really, really interesting because when you go look at the first time that love is used in the, New, in the Old Testament, you realize that it's got to do with a father and a son. You see here, and here, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. When you look at Genesis chapter 22, God says to Abraham, give me your son whom you love. And, you know, years ago I used to think, how could God ask that? And, you know, I, I know, I know now that God knew exactly that he wasn't going to ask, he wasn't going to actually demand the child, but he was going to see what was in Abraham's heart. And actually, he was bringing Abraham's heart close to the heart of God so that he would know. And, and Abraham obeyed. He, he, was the, he was the promised child, and Abraham obeyed and went up to the mountain. And he was about to sacrifice his son because not only did he love his son, but he loved God more. And when he gets there, he says to him, do your son no harm, the child no harm. I will provide myself the lamb. But you know what? Abraham left from there learning a lesson. That great sacrifice it is to give your son. I don't know what I would do if someone said to me, hey, give me Jonathan. Or give me Arden. 
you know, all of a sudden you realize you, this is one of the, the most precious things, one of the most precious relationships you can have. And here, uh, Abraham was able to identify with John 3.16 before John 3.16 was ever written. He was able to see how much God loves mankind. And one of the things that we need to ground ourselves in in our life is the, the doctrine of the love of God. C.S. Lewis wrote, If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get in the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you, you must get close to, even into the thing that has them. Jesus Christ. And Paul writes, Paul's life, he's a Pharisee like Nicodemus. He, he gets converted, and, and in Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Listen to this. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. Isn't that amazing? His, the foundation of his life. He goes, I, I just live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. I think he couldn't get away from the fact that God loved them after he had persecuted his people. The foundation of our life, the rock beneath us, must be the love of God. D.L. Moody in his book, The Way to God, wrote, If I could only make men understand the real meaning of the words of the apostle John, God is love. I would take that single text and will go up and down the world proclaiming his glor this glorious truth. If you can convince a man that you love him, you have won his heart. If we really make people believe that God loves them, how we should find them crowding into the kingdom of heaven. The trouble is that in the bottom of their hearts, Men think God hates them, and so they are all the time running away from Him. And there's nothing in the world that people treasure more than love. A person with no one to care for them is a sad person. And why is it that so many people commit suicide? Very often because they are robbed in their minds to think that nobody loves them. No one would even notice if they were gone. And people go astray and feel that God doesn't love them because, many times because, we feel that God doesn't love us because we see the shortcomings of our own heart. You know, everybody knows the plague of their own heart. Everybody knows what goes on in here. Everybody knows what we, maybe people haven't seen us do, but we know that we, we are or we entertained in us. And one of the things that we need to realize in our lives is that God hates sin. God hates your sin. God hates my sin. But God loves you. 
It's kind of like if I, if I looked, I, I always think of the illustration of a father and son or a father and daughter. And, and, and somebody comes and, and, and gets them started on heroin or something. You would hate the heroin. You would not be a good father or a good mother if you had any sort of joy in the fact that your child is doing heroin. So you would hate the heroin, but you would love the child. And in the same way, it's like that. And we have a principle within that just deceive. I mean, I deceive myself. It's amazing how I can convince myself that something's okay for me. And then I do it. And I'm just like, oh, my goodness, that was no good. That's what happened to me the other day with a bunch of biscuits. <laughs> you know, it's just like you just think, oh, that's just so good. And afterwards, like, oh, why did I do that? That wasn't worth any of it. But it's that principle, you know. And so the problem in our hearts, we have the great love of God, but the problem in our hearts is sin. This, this, this thing, not, we're not guilty, we're not sinful because we sin, we sin because we are sinful. We have this, this incredible fountain of lust inside of us. Whether pride, whether selfish ambition, whether greed, whether jealousies, whether we have this, this crazy stuff that, that is, is almost, almost uncontrollable, that just kind of bubbles up. And so the problem is sin, but God's love is so great that He came to provide a deliverer from ourselves, from the sin. We look at the world and it's like, oh my goodness, the world is a mess. The left is corrupt. The right is corrupt. Uh, this person's corrupt and that person and all this thing. But what about us? And we have a tremendous need to be delivered and rescued. And in a sense, we're be, uh, the Lord is in the, in, the, in, the, in the business of rescuing people from the penalty of sin. That means that when you are driving down the road, and uh, the other day I was driving down my road, and, um, and there was a cop car hid right in front of a van. I was like, that sneaky guy, you know, he's just hiding in front of the van, and, he, and, and the speed limit on my street is 30 kilometers an hour. And then further down, they would call each other, it's like, okay, the one in the white car, he's got to find. But whenever you're... you're, you're guilty you know you have a penalty you have a fine to to pay and God has come has sent his son to save us from the penalty of sin that means to get rid of the debt that means that whatever uh, payment, whether it's a prison, prison center, sentence or whether it's a financial thing, it, it, it gets wiped away. No more guilt legally. That's one of the things that God sent his son to do for us. Number one is that. Number two, he came to save us from the power of sin. You see, there are, there, oftentimes we can find that, I mean, we, we can be trapped to the, by the power of sin, whether it's, a, whether it's jealousy, whether it's covetousness, whether, whether it's our self-righteousness, but we have no power over it. We are bound to it. 
And, and as we were talking about at Divos the other day, one time I was, going, I was in Calarajada, and we were going to the lighthouse, and there was a, a, a car that had tipped over the side. The, the roads are really narrow. And I got behind that next to that car, and I said, I'll help you. And I went to the car, and I went, <laughs> that thing didn't move not even a millimeter. <laughs> then three of us came. And I said, okay, come on, guys. And then we got there, and nothing happened. And then Loretta came. No, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> no. But, then, but then all of a sudden, they, they brought a, tow, a, a truck, and, and the hydraulics grabbed that car, and with no effort whatsoever, went That is the problem we have with sin. You try another New Year's resolution. You try another, I'm going to get fit. You, you know what I mean? It's just, like, it's just like, it's impossible. You try. You try. And then, and, and then let's say that you do do it. Then you get proud that you did it. So you, you, you get caught up on the other side. But it is the Holy Spirit through what Jesus did. That he comes and he's the hydraulics of our life. He raises us up. So then all of a sudden, we have power over sin. We are no longer bound by these things, but we have control. It doesn't mean we don't fail. But when we fail, we confess it and we are outside. All of a sudden, it's not that I'm free to do. I used to think I was free to smoke. I was free to do cocaine. I was free to do uh, whatever I wanted until I realized that I had no freedom whatsoever. I needed to do it. Freedom came when I realized I didn't have to do it. <laughs> but then my favorite, my favorite is when one day God sent his son to save us from the presence of sin. I imagine when we are with Jesus and no longer, no longer will there be bad thoughts that come up. No longer will there be stubbornness and uh, I, I was talking to Jonathan yesterday. I don't know. We were, we were arguing about something. And I said, man, you're being stubborn. And he kind of looked at me kind of like, <laughs> almost like, and you're not, <laughs> you know. But, but the stubbornness that can be, you know, we, sometimes we just want to be right. But to think that one day there will be no sin, no presence of sin within us. It'll, it'll be We'll be completely delivered from the penalty. We'll be delivered from the power. But we'll be delivered from the very presence of sin. What a glorious day. Psalm 103, though, because we're still in this situation, says, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. So he, he revealed to Nicodemus the love of God, but he also revealed to Nicodemus the problem of sin. But thirdly, in this verse that we read, verse 14, it says, And, Mo and as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He reveals to Nicodemus the method in which he was going to deliver, he's going to rescue um, he's going to redeem the, the, the world. Jesus doesn't point by accident to the story in Numbers chapter 21. 
You see in Numbers chapter 21, the nation was discouraged in the wilderness, and the people spoke against the Lord and against Moses. Interesting. Uh, they, they brought accusations against God. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? What did they lack? What did they doubt? Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? They were discouraged. What did they doubt? They doubted the love of God. And it was the very sinfulness in them that caused them to complain against Moses. And the Lord sent fiery serpents. Because of sin, there's, there's this judgment that happens. And among the people, and, and they got bit by snakes. And then they confessed and they said, we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray for the Lord to take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent. Lift. And when you lift it up, this, this serpent of bronze, lift it up. Whoever looks at it, when they are bitten by the snake, will live. And it's interesting because, I mean, I'm sure there were people who's like, well, I don't understand why I have to look at the serpent. Boom, they die. Well, I'm a bit skeptical about looking at the serpent. Okay, boom, they die. But there are some people that just said, you know what? If God has said I should look at the serpent, maybe I should just look at the serpent. And they looked and they lived. Very basic. Very simple. But maybe sometimes God is just not complicated. <laughs> and you know, I mean, we're going to get into it in a minute in the method. But the, the world, our DNA, the DNA of our being believes in redemption. You take the movie by Denzel Washington. This little girl gets uh, uh, kidnapped by a cartel. And the guy goes on a, on a quest to deliver this girl. And in the end, there's a bridge, and, um, and the girl's on the other side with the cartel, cartel, and he is on this side, and he goes over. The, they meet at the middle of the bridge, and, and, uh, and, and Denzel Washington goes all the way to the other side, and the girl goes back to his, her family. And you look at that movie, and you're just kind of, I mean, you're just upset. You're just like, how in the world? But it's redemption. He gives his life for her. And no one is sitting there going, oh, that's ugly. Oh, no, I don't believe that. No, no, no. It, it's, it's, in our, it's in our DNA. Redemption is in our DNA. You take United Flight 93 on September 11th when you had these, um, this flight that was um, uh, took off. And then as they're in the air, four, four uh, hijackers made it to the front of the plane. And, um, and they began to struggle taking the control from the captains and then the crew began i mean sorry the 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 people that were on the plane began to from the phone because you have phones on on the phone on the on the planes there began to realize that two planes had hit the towers one plane had hit the pentagon and then all of a sudden these guys were wrestling and they and and this actually this particular plane supposedly was heading towards the capitol building where the senators and the house of representatives the representatives of the united states were and it's supposed to be heading there and they wrestle these people down until they finally they crash the plane on a field in Pennsylvania to save the people 
It's a redemption story. And we're just like, oh my goodness, such bravery, such strength, such sacrifice. And then we go to Jesus and we're like, well, I don't know. But I tell you what, the redemption, the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, it is the biggest redemption story in the universe. And he's come to redeem you and he's come to redeem me. And Jesus says, in order to redeem the world, I must be lifted up. That whoever believes in me shall not perish but have eternal life. And it's interesting because I love this stuff, you know. It's not like Jesus showed up and says, hey, you've got to believe in me and you will be redeemed. And says, just take my word for it. No, no, it's not like that. There are prophecies in the Old Testament that already prepared the way for Jesus because this redemption story was written since the beginning in Genesis when God told Adam and Eve, you know, I'm going to crush the serpent. And you know what? In 620, between 620 and 538 B.C., Daniel wrote that after the command to rebuild Jerusalem, after the command to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince would come would be 483 years. And then that when he showed up, he would be cut off, but not for himself, for somebody else. In Isaiah 53, which was written in 778 B.C., it says, he is despised and rejected by man. He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And, he, and we did, we hid his, as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. So in other words, we saw him on the cross and we thought, oh, how shameful. He's forsaken by God. I mean, they actually said to him, save yourself. But Isaiah goes, but he was wounded for our transgressions. Redemption. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement, the penalty that was supposed to be for us came upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And in 1035 to 907 B.C. lived King David. And he wrote these words, But I am a worm, and no man... I am a reproach to men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip and shake their head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. He says, I am poured out like water and my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like the pot's red, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me in the congregation. They have pierced, listen, they have pierced my hands, and they have pierced my feet. 
I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for clothing, they cast lots. Listen, in 1035 BC, King David writes about the Messiah's hands and the Messiah's feet being pierced, death by crucifixion. You know what's interesting? At that time, crucifixion had not been invented. Crucifixion was invented years later by the Medo-Persians. And then it was, uh, uh, it was actually perf uh, perfected by the Romans. And you have the very death of the Messiah being prophesied so that when he came and he fulfilled it, we would know that it was not just some accident, but that actually God had planned it. But even in Psalm 16, which is around the same time, then David wrote, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also rests in hope, for you will not allow your Holy One to... You, not, you will not leave my soul in shield, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You, you're not going to allow the Messiah to just stay in the grave. He will not decompose. You will raise Him from the dead. All prophesied before before Jesus even stepped into the picture. But, I, but the point I'm trying to make here is the great redemption was costly. It was preordained. It was preplanned. It was written before. But listen, it was costly. Listen to the chief medical examiner as he speaks about Jesus sweating blood. Listen. It is well known that there have been many cases of it. So it's not just Jesus that has sweat blood. It is well known that there have been many cases of it. The clinical term is hematohydrosis. Around the sweat glands, there are multitude blood vessels in a net-like form. Under the pressure of stress, the vessels constrict. Then as the anxiety passes, the blood vessels dilate to the point of rupture. The blood goes into the sweat glands. As the glands are producing a lot of sweat, it pushes the blood to the surface, coming out as drops of blood mixed with sweat. It's really interesting this, because number one, you realize that the reason that Jesus sweat blood is because he was under tremendous stress, agony, to fulfill this redemption. It's really interesting that it says that after the person relaxes is when the blood goes into the stream because it says that an angel strengthened them and it was after the angel strengthened them that he sweat blood. So it's quite, it, it, it's quite fascinating. But Jesus at the garden said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. He was under stress. He said to his father, if there be any other way for this cup to pass, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. In other words, he's saying, if there would be any other way to redeem man, let this cup pass from me. The cross. You know, I think he dreaded the physical cross in some ways. I think he dreaded that he who knew no sin, that all the sin of the world will be put upon him. 
But I don't think that's even what he dreaded the most. I think he dreaded the most the fact that at the cross, he would say something that he had never said in all of eternity. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, listen, guys. Jesus had never referred to God as, his, as God. He always referred to God as his Father. And at the cross, at the method that God chose to redeem us, for the first time in eternity, the Son was separated from his Father. And he dreaded that. Now, please understand, it's not all suffering as such. It's not all anxiety. It's not like Jesus said, oh, my goodness, I don't want to go to the cross. He was shying away from the cost. But when you read Hebrews 12, 12, it says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So in the suffering, it's not like he did it reluctantly. It's he did it joyfully, although it cost him everything, to redeem you and I. He did it rejoicing. So that we can actually stand redeemed. So when we have Steffi talking about the ladies... Or when we have the untouchables in India. Or you have the Pharisees in particular uh, places of, of self, uh, self-righteousness. We realize that man's heart, like he already told them, you must be born again. Man's heart is in a mess. Listen, your heart is in a mess. My heart is in a mess. And Jesus... I mean, God reveals the love. God reveals the problem. And God reveals to, Abraham, to, to Nicodemus the method. Now, you might sit here and say, well, I don't like that method. You might end up like the Israelites that said, well, I don't know if I believe in that brass snake. I don't know if I believe in that. Whoever looked to the snake lived. God is not the God of Christians. God is the God of the universe. And he has provided one method. Because he loves all of us. And because we have a universal problem that cannot be resolved through religion. It has to be resolved through redemption. And the redemption that he has chosen is the cross because he loves you. And Jesus reveals to Nicodemus the need, the motive, and the method. What can we learn from this? What, what, what should this produce in us? Well, first of all, I mean... When we look at the cross, when we look at the method, how it's been prepared, how he came, how he went to it, how he determined, he set his face to go steadfast. There is no way that you could ever doubt the love of God for you. Now, sometimes we get into this thing where if, if our life looks good, 
if we are successful, if we are mentally balanced, if everything is just perfect, then God loves us. But the moment we have trials, then maybe God is not, maybe, maybe he still loves us, but not quite like us. But we never measure the love of God on the basis of our circumstances. If that was the case, Paul would have never said the love of Christ constrains me because he was often in perils, in prisons, in shipwrecks. Can you imagine in the middle of the sea as the ship was out lost for days without seeing the sun of light and he goes, oh, well, God has forsaken me. No, no, he says, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve appeared to me last night. He was convinced of the love of God. And one of the things it will produce is like I, uh, John Newton, he wrote the song, uh, When I Surveyed the, uh, the Wondrous Cross on Which the Prince of Glory Died, My Riches Gain I Count But Loss and, and Pour Contempt on All My Pride. And then he says this, Love so amazing, love so divine demands my life, my soul, my all. It is a saturation, it is a foundational uh, realization that God's love is deep, and it's demonstrated at the cross. Number two we can learn from this is that he doesn't draw near to us to condemn us. I think sometimes we are so defensive that the moment somebody says, but you, you're just kind of like, <gasps> no, no. Here, Nicodemus finds out the world is condemned already. He draws near, and he sometimes he challenges, and he draws out even our sin so that we will come out with it because he wants to take it away. You know, the woman at the well. Go get your husband. Oh, I, I have no husband. That's right. You've had five, and the one you live with now is not your husband, you know, and, 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 and who knows the reasons that were behind that, but he just draws out. The contrast is Adam and Eve. Remember Adam and Eve? When, they, when, Jesus, when God came up and says, where are you? What did they do? They hide. Condemnation makes us hide. The grace of God makes us come out and says, he's come to redeem me from this. To save me from the penalty. To save me from the power of it. So not just to forgive me and leave me the same, but to actually change me. And then he's going to deliver me from the presence of it all. Number three, it should help us to appreciate how costly this redemption is. It's so amazing to me how easy it is for us to worship. I mean, aren't you glad that you're not a Jew born in... in the, in, in the first century BC and then you had to slaughter animals and you have to travel from Rome all the way to the presence of God to worship him and I mean we get to worship him in the toilet I mean we, we, we sit down and we just pray Lord and, and then we go to the, to the hills and then we go to the valleys and, and, and we, we're on a bicycle we go for a run everywhere we are with him and the reason it's so easy is not because it's cheap. It's because he, it was costly to him. And guys, one of the things that we need to cultivate in our hearts, it's gratefulness, remembrance for what he's done, and to see that what has been given freely to us has been costly to other people. And that's why Veterans Day last week is so important to remember. To remember the people 
They gave their lives for us to have liberty, for us to enjoy the freedoms. The freedoms that we have today are not, ha, are, have not come free. They've come from many people giving their lives to stop tyrants from taking over and ruling our lives. Number four, what it will produce in us, it will settle our lives. Everybody thinks themselves strong. And everybody thinks themselves strong for a season. But it's amazing. I, I, and I was talking to someone this week that, um, I mean, it just seemed like they had no emotion. It seemed like they had it all together. And then all of a sudden it says, you know, but I had to get some help. All of a sudden I had a panic attack. My heart was acting up. I was feeling a pain. And I just went into a panic attack. And I thought to myself, oh, my goodness. Because he seemed so together that he would never have anything like that. But you know what? At the end of the day, there's a superficial having it together. But to me, what's amazing is to see, um, to, to settle our hearts that no matter what happens, we are stable in God's love. We are stable in Him. And finally, it will cause us not to live under condemnation. I think condemnation is one of the greatest plagues that is going on today among us. People feeling guilty about everything. Just guilty. And they've done wrong and they try to make it up by good. And then, or the condemnation that says, I cannot come to God. I can't even look up. Or, or the walking away of thinking, man, I messed up so I, I, I just can't even approach the Lord. And I want to leave this with you. As we get grounded in the love of God through the problem of sin and the, and the uh, provision of the method of redemption, as we get grounded on that, we will not be so shocked when we sin anymore. And then when we mess up, rather than hiding it, we will come out in the open with them quicker and quicker as the years go by. And then we will realize that the devil comes, and when you do wrong, it's like, you're worthless. You're really going to pray to God now? Good luck, buddy. I mean, first he entices you. Hey, this looks so good. Eat the biscuits, buddy. You know, and it's... And then you eat the biscuits like, oh, you loser. I can't believe you did that. You have no discipline. And, 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 but, but honestly, it's just like, and, and, and it makes you feel like you cannot come to God. And I'm not talking, I mean, I'm being funny when I talk about biscuits. I'm talking about no matter what you do, the pressures to push you from God, condemnation pushes from God. Conviction, on the other hand, says, Yes, you blew it, but I knew you would blow it. And that's why I died on the cross. And I want you to come back to me because my plans for you are not done. I still have desires for you. 
you haven't shocked me. You've shocked yourself. When I chose you, when I called you, I already knew the past, present, future, what you would do. And I have plans. And I think that's the story of Peter. Peter is just like, I mean, he was able to say the best things. We were looking at Devos the other day, how he says, oh, Lord, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And in another place, he goes, oh, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And next thing you know, he's under pressure in the middle of the night. He's like, I don't know who he is. And then he went, and he had failed greatly out of fear. He, he denied the Lord. And Jesus didn't say to him, hey, sorry, buddy, you couldn't make it. He said to him, I've prayed for you. And then he said to him, do you love me? And he says, you know that I love you. He says, feed my sheep. That means he's not done with them. And then when the day of Pentecost came, you know, as they're, as they're waiting there upon the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes down, and next thing you know, it's like Peter gets up to speak. It's not like Jesus goes and says, sorry, Peter, you denied me. You can't do this today. <laughs> we got to choose somebody else. And he grabs no, no, he says, Peter, go ahead. And he used Peter with the keys of the kingdom to open the kingdom to the Jews. 3,000 people give their lives to the Lord. Then he opens the kingdom to the Samaritans. Hey, wait, Philip, we got somebody else coming. John and Peter are going on mission here to open the kingdom. And, and, then, and then the Gentiles have to receive the gospel. And Jesus says, wait a minute, Peter, you are going to do that too. Not because of him. But despite of him, he was getting a hold of the grace of God. And so I, I don't know. I, I don't know how to better leave it for you. But I think the revelation for us to understand here is that we are tremendously loved. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't deal with your sin and my sin. It is a problem that we have. And the sooner we admit it, the better we'll be. And to realize that he wants to redeem us from it. From the penalty, from the presence, and, uh, and from the power. And guys, that the only method that God has provided, whether we like it or not, is the method of the cross that was costly, but was done joyfully through great sacrifice. And that is the power for your life, for transformation. Take it or leave it. One day, you can argue it with him. But that is what God has left for the world to be redeemed. If you do not know the Lord here today, I would ask you, what keeps you from it? Is it intellectual pride? Is it... Is it, is it uh, I'm going to do it myself? Kind of, is, it, is it just I'm my own savior? What is it? What holds you back? Because you know, we all know we have a problem. But what we might know is how loved we are. And we might not agree with, but who needs to agree with God? At the end of the day, he does what he wants. He is chosen to save us through the method of the cross. And you know what? Let me tell you this. As you grow and you get to know the cross, you realize, my goodness, that he has provided so generously 
It's amazing the wisdom of the cross as we grow in it. So if you do not know the Lord here today, let's bow our heads. Let's bow. Um, let's pray together. But if you don't know the Lord here today, I would ask you, maybe today is the day that you say, Lord, I had not heard it like this before. I didn't realize that. You know, sometimes we think about the word redemption and we make cliches of it. I didn't realize that the, the thrust of it all. And, and I want to receive you, Lord, as my Savior, realizing that you love me, realizing that you didn't come to condemn me, although you don't ignore the problem, you've come to save me from the problem. And Lord, and I accept your method. I accept the method that had to make a payment Of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So maybe you want to pray after me. Lord, I have sinned. I've looked for help everywhere. I've looked for love everywhere. And just it never came home to me that it's you who loves me. And it's you who has come to earth to live a perfect life, to die upon a cross, to rise. And that that is what seems foolish to some men, but that is what you have chosen to save mankind. Lord, save me. Help me. In Jesus' name, amen.